and welcome to my hearth. Now in the last episode, we were talking specifically about food in Christmas stories. But the iconography of food is prevalent in all of our storytelling, even when we are children. Nursery rhymes themselves have elements of food in. If we think of Sing a Song of Sixpence, a pocket full of rye, four and twenty blackbirds baked in a pie. When the pie was open, the birds began to sing. Wasn't that a dainty dish to set before the king? A strange dish, and with a symbolism that could be very deep and dangerous. It may well be to do with the religious significance of the Protestant movement in France. I wouldn't have thought the king himself would have been particularly interested, as he was in his counting house, uh, counting out his money. The queen was in the parlour, eating bread and honey. Again, stressing the difference between poor food and rich food. Honey in particular was always associated with the rich. It also has religious significance. A land of milk and honey is where people were aspiring to. The whole idea of an insect that creates food that humans want to eat is very specifically interesting. The bees are dangerous and can sting you, and yet what they actually make, what they prepare, is something that we all want to have. Honey and sweetness run through very many stories. There are also rituals to do with beekeeping, where the beekeeper is trying to keep himself safe from the sting of the bees, and dresses appropriately and goes through a variety of rituals with smoke machines and netting that lends itself to ritualistic storytelling. Any activity that has the right way and the wrong way to do it is always going to lend itself to a story. Because food is one of our basic needs, we need it as well as wanting it, there is a complete spectrum of treating it properly to treating it badly. There were warnings to children of overeating. Greedy children were incredibly well personified in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the Willy Wonka story, where the greedy children come to the factory and all come literally to a sticky end. The morality of greedy children is always seen in stories. In our worst moments, we would all like to be Billy Bunter, cripes Yeru, and overeat from the school tuck shop or midnight feasts. Many people's idea of heaven is the idea that you can eat without getting fat. There are other strange tales and rhymes connected with eating. When I was little, I was fascinated by Jack Spratt, who would eat no fat, uh, 
his wife would eat no lean, and so between the pair of them they licked the platter clean. In my generation we were always taught that it was the fat that gave the flavour to the meat, and so everything was cooked with the fat on, and then the fat was removed before the meat was carved. I was amazed when I first went to France, which I did from when I was very little, that the French had a way of preparing their meat where they removed the majority of the fat. However, they had other dishes where you cooked meat very slowly in fat, in like a fat bath, and then proceeded to chill it and deal with it in that particular way. I think I've said before that for my parents' generation who had lived through ten years of rationing, because it went on such a long while after the war, that for them food was precious. We were encouraged as children to make certain that we ate everything on our plate. And I think the way that my parents dealt with this process was to actually say to people, what do you want, before they dished it up. Now remember that when I was little, there wasn't a lot of prepared food. For many years, for example, my little grandma, my maternal grandma, baked all the bread for her family. Now bearing in mind that they had six children, this was a massive undertaking, but all the way through her life she would never have eaten a sliced loaf. I've already said that one of my jobs when I was little was to go to the baker's every day and buy the bread. In that sense we were like the French. Obviously we weren't buying baguettes, we were buying little white tins but the bread was only intended to last a day. Bearing in mind how many people passed through our house to eat, we were buying lots of loaves, and anything that was left over was turned into toast. When I went to Bryson's the Bakers in Keswick, the queues went outside the shop, and they had loads of people serving on the tills and the counters, so that you went through very quickly. You had to know what you wanted before you went in. I was given very strict instructions and also the people behind the counter knew who I was and knew what Mrs Davis wanted. If it wasn't up to scratch I had to report back the next day any shortcomings in their particular bake. A lot of the rest of the shopping was done at the home and colonial stores where you went in and very many of the products were served loose and wrapped up in brown paper. This was an age before plastic wrapping and packaging. And again, luckily, everybody in the shops knew that although my name was Harris, I was a Davis and therefore it had to be right for Grandma. For the most part, I was trusted with the shopping. There were certain things that I wasn't allowed to do on my own. However, I would then 
accompany my grandma, who was the equivalent of Sir Edmund Hillary, going up Mount Everest. I was her Sherpa Tensing, who was there to carry packets and packages. One such location was the butcher's, because she would always have to check the meat. Food was very different because, of course, we had four meals a day. There was breakfast and lunch, which was a big meal, and then there was tea and supper. I think this was a throwback to people working very hard in physical jobs, so that lunch needed to be substantial. We would have things like Tatey Pot, which was the equivalent in Cumberland to Lancashire Hot Pot, with meat and layers of onion and potatoes. The top layer was dotted with butter, so that it went a bit brown and crispy. And very often, especially if it was available and looked right, there would be things like black pudding in it, which I know people don't like, but which I was brought up on, and so I have a taste for it. There were lots of hearty stews and casseroles in the winter, because, of course, places were much colder in those days. In Grandma's house in Cumberland, we didn't have central heating, and so the food had to provide our own central heating. You were never short of food, and you were never short of phrases that went with food. You don't want to go to bed on an empty stomach, was something that I only heard in those days. Sit down and make your dinner did not refer to the fact that they were expecting you to cook it, but they were expecting you to eat enough of it to satisfy your need for calories. Because of the combination of her upbringing and also because of the war, food was always hearty and relatively economical. The main meal of a Sunday was seen as the highlight of the week. It was normally roast beef and Yorkshire pudding. And I have to say that my grandma, not my mum, but my grandma, always slightly overcooked it. And there was a fine line between it being very well prepared and her cry of, how Tommy, this meat's tough. Funnily enough, my mum had not been taught to cook by my grandma, because if you remember, I told you that she went to help her grandma look after the guests that they took in. And as a result, she was taught by an excellent cook, my great-grandma Martha. And everything was done in a range there. In storytelling, everybody's mum is a brilliant cook, but my mum was a really brilliant cook. People were always trying to get an invite to our house for a meal. We were one of the first families that I knew of that had a chest freezer. And because my mum knew what to do with every cut of meat, they would buy half a cow or a sheep 
and have it all cut up by the butcher and put in the freezer. I'm not surprised that they had to buy in such bulk, because, as I say, there were so many people that ate with us and that we fed. Before my grandparents moved to Keswick, of course, they lived in the northeast, and where they lived, in Mickley, they always had an allotment or grew vegetables in their gardens. My mother was an amazing gardener, but she didn't grow vegetables, and the main reason was that we always lived in the middle of farmland. And so there were plenty of vegetables to be had locally that were amazingly fresh. This was an age before supermarkets, where your local shops were your standbys, and there was always a greengrocer. Again, we always bought sacks of potatoes and nets of onions and huge bags of carrots, and so we were never short of vegetables. We got eggs from the local farm. Of course, in those days, we had our own milkman, and things were always being delivered. Modern storytelling is so different because shopping nowadays is so different. We've gone back to deliveries, but it's not the individual shops that are now delivering the food, but a supermarket which delivers your entire shopping for the week. In storytelling in the past, you met people in the queue for a popular shop. Nowadays, you meet someone going around the supermarket when you encounter their trolley. I'm sure I will return to the subject of food in storytelling in other podcasts, but I'd just like to remind people of the magical quality of certain foods. Remember, Hansel and Gretel are attracted to a gingerbread house in a wood. Food can be a trap as well as a treat. Now I'll return to the storytelling of my childhood in the next episode.